Would you look at Job 5, 7 again? It says, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Can I ask you tonight, is that true? Is man born for trouble? Can I say to you tonight, that's not why you were born. You were not born for trouble or to be in trouble or to cause trouble. You were born for something else. And I wonder, as I throw that out to you tonight, what you might speak back to me. I was born for this. And do you know why you were born? Well, one of the reasons that you were born is you were fearfully and wonderfully made, and you are God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. You've been created or recreated in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that you should what? Walk in them. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and that plan and purpose is not for trouble. It's actually for good. In fact, God is working all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, sometimes trouble gets us there. <laughs> Amen. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom to get to that point where we understand what God's trying to do in our life. Sometimes we take a, a route that's a little longer, like the children of Israel wandering in the desert, right? Sometimes we have to relearn lessons over and over and over again. Turn to Psalm 46 for a second. I want to give you some encouragement. The word for trouble is tribulation in the uh, English in the New Testament. It's a word that we're familiar with in an end times context. And here's what the Bible says about trouble. One of many places we could go, but this is one that I thought might minister to you tonight. It says, Psalm 46, verse 1, just a little bit to your right. God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 46, verse 1, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah, that's a pause, ponder, think about it. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Here's another pause and ponder. Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord, is, uh, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob or Israel is our stronghold. Selah, pause, ponder, meditate, think about it. You see, you were not born for trouble. Sometimes life is going to throw you some trouble. You were born to glorify God and to live out his plan for your life. To find fullness of life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. But Job's friends came and they heard him give this speech about all of his trouble. And he cursed the day 
the night of his conception. He cursed the night of his birth, the birth announcement. And he was, he didn't know how to make sense of his trouble. And without spiritual eyes, the natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit. Imagine right now a world where we try to analyze the trouble, and this is what a lot of people are doing. We try to figure out what's behind the trouble, what's really going on, and how do we fix it devoid of the gospel. And some of us were there, right? We had lived our lives without Jesus, without hope, without God in our lives, without God in the world, as Ephesians 2 puts it. And we were in the futility of our own minds. In fact, most of us would have to admit that we were largely driven by pragmatism. That means whatever was pragmatic, whatever worked for me, whatever worked for me, myself, and I, that's pretty much what I did, right? I got there one way or the other because that's really what the world told me to do. Well, Job has been walking with God. He's been careful about his life. He's an upright man. And now all this trouble has come to him, and his friends have come to try to figure it out. And so Eliphaz continues in chapter 5, verse 1, finding help in times of trouble. And he says, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? Now, Eliphaz is speaking, and Job is listening. God is listening. The other friends are listening. And he says, call now. Will anyone answer you? Sometimes in life, we can feel that way, right? We can, we can wonder if our prayers are going any higher than the ceiling. We can wonder if God is really with us in times of trouble. I just read Psalm 46 to you to let you know that there is someone who will answer you when you call. Now, he may not always answer you the way you want to be answered. <laughs> he might not always deliver you in the way that you want to be delivered. But God is faithful. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble and in time of need. And he will give you what you need in that moment. He will be shaping you. Well, here... Eliphaz is trying to make the, the best of what he understands Job is going through. And he's asking a question that one writer says is, even though it's a question that seems hopeless, it's actually a question that is pregnant with hope. He says, to which of the holy ones will you turn? See the phrase holy ones there? That's used many times of the angels. Deuteronomy 33.2 says, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai. He dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came forth in the midst of 10,000 holy ones, and his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. In Jude 14, only one chapter, it says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. The Bible talks about the holy ones, and the holy ones in this setting are angels. In the Bible, we are not called to turn to angels as our answer. Now, we know that in the Bible, God often dispatches angels, and angels are ministering spirits come to minister to those who will inherit salvation. In the book of Matthew, for example, an angel came to Joseph and reassured him that he could go ahead and uh, marry Mary, <laughs> and that uh, uh, the child that was in her was uh, the Messiah. A warning came in a dream, and then he was told that he could go back. There's angelic visitations in the birth narratives and in the book of Revelation. But we are never told in the Bible that we're to call to an angel to get help. In fact, we are told in the book of Colossians that people are wrong 
when they worship angels. Now, I think we could pray a prayer like this. Lord, would you surround this place with your angels? I often pray that. But I'm asking God to send his angels, if you will. I'm not appealing to an angel. And remember, Eliphaz has limited knowledge. And so what he says is, is there a holy one that you could call to? Is there somebody that could be a mediator for you? I want you to step back from what you know of the Christian faith right now. And if you were a person who maybe didn't know much or you didn't have a Bible, what, how would you make sense of this? See, the ancients used to think that the throne room of God was really inaccessible to man. And do you know that the way that you have access to God is through a mediator because there is one God and one mediator between God and man, that is the man, Christ Jesus. But what if you didn't have Jesus? What if you didn't have Jesus as your mediator, as your go-between? What, what if you couldn't access the throne of God whenever you decided to pray, whenever you were in a time of trouble? What if you couldn't be assured that he would pick up the phone when you call? Wouldn't that be a bummer? Do you understand how significant it is that you have a mediator named Jesus Christ who ever lives to intercede for you? who's often waiting for you to call? It is amazing for us to think about the fact that without the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we, would be, we would have something between us and God. And what is between us and God? It is our sin, and sin separates us from God. And Jesus is the bridge that brings us back to God. And sometimes we just take that for granted as Christians. Oh, yeah, I can pray whenever I want. I can just bow my head when I'm ready. But it is such good news to have a mediator between God and man. Now, we're in the book of Job. This is way back. This is before the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. And so here's Eliphaz trying to encourage his friend. And maybe there's some hope in this. But he says, if you called out, would anybody answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Well, the angels are not the answer, and Jesus is not an angel. The book of Hebrews tells us some important things that we should look at. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews is making sure we understand Jesus' superiority to everything else, including the angels. Take a look with me. This is Hebrews 1. Look at verse 5. Hebrews 1 verse 5. The Lord says, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. This is uh, Hebrews 1 verse 5. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the who? All the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. In Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father calls God the Son, God. And he tells the other angels to worship him. Look at verse 13, chapter 1. But to which of the angels has he ever said? And the answer is none. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see, Jesus Christ is God. 
the second person of the Holy Trinity, and he is your access. He lives to intercede for you. He's your great high priest. Flip over to Hebrews 2. Look at verse 18. Hebrews 2.18 says, For since he himself, Jesus, was tempted in that which he suffered, he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Could I say it this way? To those who are any, in any kind of trouble, he is able to come to your aid. When you call, he will answer. He will in no way uh, kick you out or say, you know what? No, I'm tired of listening to you about that one. But I'm in trouble, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm sick and tired of hearing this same prayer request. I'm tired of you having this same hang-up, Michael, this same problem. When are you going to get over this? Now, that's what some of my human friends might say to me, right? But that's not Jesus. In fact, in Hebrews 4, it says these words. Since we have 4.14 of Hebrews, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 4.14. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, in light of who Jesus is, let us draw near with what? With confidence. Not to the throne of judgment, but to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in what? In time of need or time of trouble, Jesus Christ is there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are there when I'm in trouble. And you can empathize and sympathize with my weaknesses, with my times of trouble. Here's the question back to Job. Is there anybody who would answer when you call out? Are there any of these holy ones, says Eliphaz, that would be available to you, Job, should you cry out? Remember, Job's been, been speaking about the day of his uh, conception and birth, and he's bummed about it. He wants it erased from the calendar. But there is one who can mediate, and he is coming. See, Job at this point, he has a sense that a redeemer is coming, but he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know the full story that God's going to become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know that hope yet. So here he is in times of trouble. And we get a little glimpse of the gospel. Back to Job 5, look at verse 2. For vexation, Job 5, 2, NIV has it as resentment, slays the foolish man, Eliphaz speaking to Job, and anger or jealousy or envy kills the simple. Now, even though Eliphaz is trying to encourage his friend, you're going to notice that there's some correction in his speech or his sermon. He's saying, Hey, Job, you're pretty vexed right now, and that slays a foolish man. And anger or envy kills the simple. Well, now, would you all agree that Eliphaz has this one right? Resentment ends up killing us. If you bear resentment in your heart and you hold on to grudges and you continue to sweep them over the, under the rug over and over again, it's going to end up hurting you. If you have unresolved anger in your heart, it often turns to resentment. And anger or jealousy, uh, ESV, can kill the simple. Eliphaz quotes what one writer says is a proverb about the damage of undealt anger in our lives. 
These words, says one author, describe the burning, angry emotions that motivate one to erratic behavior and the desire for revenge. Such strong emotion kills the fool and slays the simple. The words used for fool and simple encompass the full range of foolish people. How many people have done silly things because they have not dealt with their anger? And we all can have anger manifest itself in different ways. And Eliphaz is certainly concerned about his friend, right? He's heard his friend talk about his, his own life like he never wanted it to exist. He says, I have seen the foolish taking root, and I cursed his abode or his house immediately. In verse 3 of Job 5, after quoting a proverb, Eliphaz appeals once again to what he has seen. He's seen a foolish man taking root. Have you ever seen a company make a hire? And maybe you were one of the employees and you saw that person for who they really were and the other people didn't see it. Or maybe you knew something and that person gets hired. And I don't think Eliphaz is saying, I curse that. I think Eliphaz is saying, I can see what's coming here. We could put it this way. There goes the neighborhood. Because sometimes if a fool enters into a position of power and authority or influence, what do we know is going to happen next? Unless that fool becomes wise and they take root in that neighborhood, that position, that family, that relationship, those roots are going to be affecting other people. Amen? The fool impacts people just like the wise man impacts people. And I have a question for you, because this is how the Bible lays this out. If you want to be a wise man, you walk according to God's principles. If you want to be a fool, you reject God's principles. But you never, please hear me, you never do it in a vacuum. Your decision-making will affect other people around you. And this particular uh, picture of a foolish man taking root is used in a negative sense, but it's used in a positive in Psalm 1 of a man or woman of God who meditates on the Word of God how often? Day and night. Not just once a week, not 1.5 times a month when you show up. The evangelical average of church attendance, 1.5 times a month. What in the world is going on with that? How do we get a half a time? I can tell you, it's the people <laughs> halfway there. Hope that's not you tonight. Anyway, <laughs> you know, they say of trees that what you see above the ground is roughly equivalent to the depth of the roots below the ground. And the fruit that you produce in your life will be equivalent to how deep your roots go. Turn over to the book of Jeremiah. It's a little bit to your right. And I would like you to see this one because I think this says it all. And this gives us a positive uh, insight into a person who's got their roots in the right direction. Even in stormy times. Jeremiah 17. Look at verse 5. Jeremiah 17, 5. It says, thus says the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. And whose heart turns away from the Lord, 17.6. He will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. On the uh, opposite end, you have a cursed is the man in five. Blessed is the man, by contrast, who what? 
trusts in the Lord. Now, the man in verse 5 trusts in mankind, man's wisdom. The man in verse 7 trusts in the Lord and his wisdom and whose trust is the Lord. Here's what he'll be like. He'll be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give each man according to his ways and according to the results of his deeds. Your spiritual life, brothers and sisters, back to the book of Job, is going to take an investment. It's going to take you deciding that you're going to plant some deep roots. It's not going to be good enough just to use the weed whacker on the weeds of your life. Anybody with me? Pulling weeds out is a pain. There are weeds that look like they are alien creatures. And some of these weeds, they have these weird prickly things on them, and they're, they're just almost bizarre looking. Sometimes it feels like they almost might talk to you as you try to pull them out or make a weird uh, horror movie sound like, weed, 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 weeds, weeds, weeds. But one thing that you know about a weed is that you have to pull the weed up by the root. Now, it is satisfying to use the weed whacker on a weed, especially an alien-looking weed. But here's what you need to know. It ain't over. Because Mr. Weedy apparently doesn't need water or sunlight to grow. Have you ever noticed that you try to get your grass going and... Your grass won't grow, but the weeds will grow in your grass, right? Sometimes I drive into my driveway at night, and I, it looks like a Disney movie. We have 17 rabbits, birds, and stuff going on. It's just craziness. And I start that weed whacker. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just kidding. Anyway. <laughs> now, this person, this fool, according to Eliphaz, Job 5, verse 4, his sons are far from safety. You remember how I told you that the fool's life impacts others? Job 5, verse 4. Eliphaz says, They are even oppressed in the gate. Neither is there a deliverer. His harvest, the hungry devour this fool and take it to a place of thorns. And the schemer is eager for their wealth. When this fool plants his roots deep, the curse falls on his estate, and it impacts his family, and it impacts his wealth or lack thereof. He's a fool, and it's impacted the estate of the family. One writer says, the family was seen as a unit, especially in ancient days. Loss of the family estate, which was the cornerstone of an inheritance and the means of sustaining the clan, was the worst tragedy. Consequently, the fool's children must bear the cruel brunt of the curse against the estate activated by their father's folly. The prodigal comes to mind as Jesus told the story about a son who asked for his inheritance early. And the father says, okay, take it. And the fool, the prodigal, wastes his inheritance on foolish living. And remember when the fool returns home, Jesus says, that the father 
doesn't curse him, doesn't say get out of here and never show your face again. No, God has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And aren't you glad that he's been patient with you? Because a lot of us wasted some years. Sometimes I hear people talk about becoming a Christian later on in life, and they'll say to me, Pastor Michael, I am, I am regretting the years that I wasted in the world. But you know, God can restore the years that the locust has eaten. Amen? Back to your life. He's that kind of God, and he's good to us. The sons are crushed without a defender in the gate. They, they get impacted by the folly of the father. We live in a generation where there are a lot of fatherless kids, a lot of broken homes, and unfortunately, they don't have a defender in the gate. The gate was of a city was the ancient courtroom, and the judgment is harsh. They're crushed in the gate. A lot of young men and young ladies without a father figure, unfortunately, get crushed under the weight of this world and bad counsel. If that's you, be of good cheer. God can turn your life around teach you how to live. Just get around some wise people who are following Jesus, and they'll show you the way. For affliction, verse 6, does not come from the dust, says Eliphaz. Neither does trouble sprout from the ground. For, a man, for man is born for trouble, as sparks fly upward. Now, Job, imagine you're Job there, and what has Job lost? Everything. All of his children have died. They were crushed by a house as they were uh, celebrating. The house collapsed on them. How many times during the first part of this speech could Job have said, thanks a lot, Eliphaz? Because you may not be speaking directly to me in your speech, but I'm being hit with a barb in my heart every time you mention a state or children because that's what I've lost. And Eliphaz is minimally at least implying that, Job, you must have done something wrong. You start a fire, the sparks defy gravity, they fly upward. Uh, trouble, affliction, does not come, verse 6, from the dust. Neither does trouble sprout from the ground. It comes from somewhere. Earlier in chapter 4, he said, those who harvest trouble, they end up reaping it. Whatever you sow... You will also reap. Implication, Job, you must have been sowing some bad seed. That's why this trouble has come to you. Now, they had come to bring Job comfort. How do you think Eliphaz is doing so far? He's speaking some truth, no doubt. There's some principles that are true. But he's basically telling Job, you must have done something wrong. Proverbs 6, 27 says, Can a man take fire in his bosom or to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Proverbs 6, 27 through 29. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And so this is what Eliphaz is saying to Job. You have to have messed up. Something must be wrong. And we might say the amen until we say, but wait a minute. The fire was not started by Job. Job did not throw any bad seeds into the ground. He was the most righteous man on the face of the earth that God was bragging about before Satan. 
Well, then, then what's going on here? Well, Eliphaz can't see the heavenly scene. He doesn't know what's happened. He has limited knowledge. And so he says, but as for me, here's what I would do if I were you. In New Living Translation, if I were you, I would go and present my case to him, to God. As for me, I would seek God. I would place my cause before God. Have you ever had a friend or maybe you've heard somebody say, just give it to God. Just give it to God. And in your mind, you're thinking, I've given it to God 257 times. <laughs> I'd like to respond as a non-Christian just for one moment. Lord, would that be okay? Give it to God. Just give it to God. I gave it to God. And he's given it to me. Oh, boy, has he. Can you imagine how many times Job has to bite his lip during this speech? <laughs> scraping his boils. Scratching his head. Scraping a boil. Scratching his head. What do you mean, give it to God? I'm going to give it to you. Now, Eliphaz continues. God does great and unsearchable things, true. Wonder, wonders without number. He's a miracle-working God. He gives rain on the earth. We saw that today. <laughs> Suddenly, a downfall, right? Man, it was a beautiful day in the morning. It was a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And then, all of a sudden, in the early afternoon, the storm clouds came. I even heard that some lightning hit some place in Norco. and Did it cause a fire? Wow. You never know what can happen. But God is gracious. It's a good thing we got some rain in Southern California uh, this last year, amen, because we went, what, seven or eight years of drought, and it was looking like California would just dry up, <laughs> right? Well, the Lord gives rain on the earth. He sends water on the fields, true, so that he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Now, Eliphaz, I think, is being kind here. He's saying to Job, look, God is a God of wonders. He sends water and rain. He sets on high those who are lowly, verse 11. Those who mourn are lifted up. They're lifted to safety. I think he's saying to Job, Job, you can live again. Job, your life doesn't have to be over. Job, don't curse the day of your conception. Don't curse the night of your birth. Don't ask the universe or God to wipe it off the calendar forever. Don't do that. And in that sense, Eliphaz is right. God is a miracle-working God. Write down Psalm 145, 1 through 9. Read it maybe in a devotion this week. He, God, frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so their hands cannot attain success. That's true. The same God who could restore the lowly in the morning can frustrate the plots and schemes of the wicked the so-called wise. In fact, God, 13, captures the wise by their own shrewdness and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. Now, this particular verse, first, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Job 5.13, is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.19. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness. And there, there may be a portion of a psalm here and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. God can bring to an end the so-called wisdom of the wise. 
This is 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19. Write it down. It says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, here's the quote from Job 5, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Scholars say that 1 Corinthians 3.19 is the only clear New Testament quotation from the book of Job. So that's the only time that Job is quoted apparently in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. By day, these so-called wise people of the world, they meet with darkness. They grope at noon as in the night. The brightest hour for the crafty is turned into darkness. God turns their so-called wisdom into stupidity. Romans 121-22 says, Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Remember? Professing to be wise, they became fools. And Eliphaz is right. There are people who claim to have wisdom that are simply just foolish, and at some point their wisdom so-called means nothing. But God saves. He saves 15 from the sword of their mouth, from the cutting words of the strong, New Living Translation, and the poor from the hand of the mighty. He takes them from the clutches of the powerful, NIV, so that the helpless, so the helpless, 16 of Job 5, so the helpless has hope, and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. Sometimes in this world, you can feel helpless. And helplessness often goes with a feeling of hopelessness. You see, when we feel helpless to fix something, change something, overcome something, then we get hopeless. We feel helpless and then hopeless. But with God, there is never a time to be hopeless. Because Jesus Christ is our hope, and the hope that we have is the anchor of our souls. The winds may blow. It may blow your ship around. There may be difficulty. It may be hard. But in the end, Jesus Christ is the anchor in the storm. And if you're anchored to him, you have hope. The Greek word for hope is elpis, E-L-P-I-S. One writer says it's the rich, one of the richest terms in the New Testament. It radically differs from our normal understanding of hope. The Bible describes hope with a metaphor. Hope is the anchor of our souls. Our souls are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We have stability in our lives because in the midst of the tempest, there is an anchor. And the anchor is the hope that God the Holy Spirit has shed abroad in our hearts. It is a hope that cannot possibly be ashamed. It is a hope that carries with it God's assurance. It is a hope that cannot fail. In one sense, our faith looks backward so that we put our trust in what Christ has done for us. In another sense, says this writer, our hope looks forward with the same assurance to what he will do when he completes his work of redemption in us, a work that cannot fail. Hope is merely faith looking forward. And see, a Christian is never without hope because we have Christ in our lives, and he is our living hope, as Shane sang about earlier. We have a blessed hope that's coming, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this hope can anchor you in times of trouble. 
Eliphaz breaks into what we would call a beatitude. He says, behold, or blessed, or how happy is the man whom God reproves. Implication, Job, God must be disciplining you. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. The word Almighty there is Shaddai. It's the first mention of this divine name in the book of Job. We know it as El Shaddai. God is the all-powerful, the almighty. The Greek is the Pontecrator, the almighty. The mightiest of the mighty is God. How blessed is the man whom God disciplines. Job, just receive your spanking and get on with it. Can you see Job biting his lips some more? Ration, 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 ration. What do you mean discipline? Now, maybe a brother or sister could come to us and conclude based upon matters in our own life that God is disciplining you, brother. And that could well be true because Hebrews 12, quoting a proverb, says God does discipline the son whom he loves. And if you're without discipline, then you're an illegitimate child. You see, God will discipline his children. And how many of you have been taken to the woodshed by God? <laughs> oh, Lord, okay. Message received loud and clear, right? I understand. <laughs> yes, I am limping a little bit. There is a hitch in my giddy-up, right? We understand that God does do that. Jacob, after he wrestled with God, all night, remember? He, was, he never walked the same again. That does happen. But, brothers and sisters, is Job being disciplined by God? Answer, no. Now, Job was an imperfect man, but he had done nothing. See, when God disciplines us, it's because we're out of line, just like we would discipline our children. But Job was not out of line. He was blameless. Not perfect, but walking consistently with God in reverence, re turning away from evil and uh, doing good, and he was a good man. And so this is true. Oh, how happy is the man whom God reproves. If someone gives you a, a word of correction and you know you need it, then you should receive it joyfully. Amen? A fool rejects a reproof from a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. An enemy might go, but he might be deceiving you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But I'll tell you, your friend doesn't need to be wounded when you don't know it's God's discipline. And we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, not to say to someone, the Lord's disciplining you when we don't know if he is. See, this is where some people have gone wrong when they don't understand biblical faith. They think, well, then, if something is going wrong in someone's life, it's always the result of something they did wrong. It's an action or a lack of faith. It could be that, but it may not be that. And in Job's case, it is not that. And not everything that goes wrong in your life is a result of something you did wrong. We are in a broken, cursed world. And I think the times that we know we've been taken to the woodshed because God is disciplining us, we know that. It's pretty clear, right? But there's other times when things just happen because we're in a fallen world. And not to mention the fact that we have an enemy who likes to fire his arrows at us. And so we're to take up our shield of faith, 
with which we can extinguish, how many? All of the flaming arrows of the wicked one. And when an arrow hits you, it's not necessarily about something you did wrong. It's not disciplinary from God. It's the enemy attacking you, maybe because you're doing something right. Maybe because you're taking some enemy territory. And all of a sudden, the enemy has shot a couple arrows your way. And it's not fun, and it hurts, and all of that. And the truth be told, in the book of Job, Satan has gone after Job, with God's permission, of course. But here's what Eliphaz says, and Eliphaz is right if it was applicable to Job, but it's not. He says, he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. That's true. Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, I am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. Deuteronomy 32, 39. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. From six troubles, 19. He will deliver you, Eliphaz says. Even in seven, the number of completion or perfection, evil will not touch you. That's encouraging, Eliphaz. It's true. In famine, he will redeem you from death, 20. And in war, from the power of the sword, yes, God can do that. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. Oh, Job needs to be hidden from the scourge of the tongue right now. Neither will you be afraid of violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence and famine. Neither will you be afraid of wild beasts, for you will be in league with the stones of the field. You won't have any agricultural trouble. And the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. And you will know that your tent is secure. It's in shalom, literally, in peace. For you will visit your abode and fear no loss, no loss of animals. You will know also that your descendants will be many, and your offspring is the grass of the earth. You'll have many children and grandchildren. Here it's the offspring of the, uh, as the grass. Uh, Abraham was told as the stars or the sand of the seashore. You'll have so many descendants. Uh, it, will, it will be like the stars and the sand. And here's Job listening to Eliphaz and going, I have no more children. They stole all my animals. They destroyed my property. It's an inspiring speech. It's something that maybe the other friends are going, Amen, Eliphaz, amen, amen, yeah, hallelujah, preach it, preach it, brother. It's true, it's good, it's true. And Job's going, I will not say the amen. Even though the speech has truth in it, it's not true of Job's situation. Well, let me qualify that. Will Job have children again? Yes. Will Job be restored at the end of the book? Yes. Will God bless him richly? Yes. But right now, on the ash heap, reeling from all that has happened, can Job even imagine that? Can I pause to say to you, sometimes in the midst of our trouble, it is hard to imagine that we could be restored again. It's hard to imagine that we could have back what we lost. It's hard to imagine that, you know, Job could survey his land and laugh at violence while people were violent against him. People groups came in and took his stuff and killed his servants. That he could 
not worry about these things, not be afraid of wild beasts, not be afraid of a, like an army would put stones in a field to kill your agriculture or your crops, that he would be at peace, that his tent would be secure in shalom, that he, he could survey what he has and what he's built with no fear of loss. How many of you, you know, you always have this thing on your shoulder where we worry, right? When I was growing up, my mom, every time I left the house, she would say, be careful, Michael, be careful. And then it became, be careful in your daily activities. And then it became, be careful in your hour-by-hour activities. <laughs> be careful, be careful, mom, okay, mom, be careful, be careful. And now I'm a parent. And you know what I say all the time? Be careful. I even told Pastor John earlier, by way of text, be careful driving out there. It rained and, you know, it's, it's dangerous out there. <laughs> what in the world's happening to me? It's a metamorphosis. <laughs> Sometimes when we're in the midst of loss, when the barbs have hit our heart, when Job could say beautiful speech, but a lot of that hurts me. One writer says, none of these blessings are for me anymore, Job might say, or so it would seem. But God is in the restoration business. And he often can illuminate new growth and new opportunities where you couldn't even see it before. He ends the speech by saying, you will come to the grave in full vigor. What's Job had happened to his body? Boils from the bottom of his soles of his feet to the crown of his head. In his own mind, he has to think he's dying of some disease. He probably couldn't go to a local doctor and get diagnosed of what the boils meant. So what do you think Job concluded about his health? I'm going to die. You know? And we, we've all been there before where something goes wrong with our body and we can think the worst. And Job could have easily concluded, who even knows about something like this breaking out from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, suffering with these oozing boils? I'm probably going to die. And Job might say, I'm probably going to die young. And Eliphaz says, well, a, a good man, a pious man, will, he'll go to the grave in full vigor like the stacking of grain in its season. I was talking to a guy who's in his 50s, and he's very active. And I said, man, you're doing a lot of different stuff, and, you know, you're, you're, you're active. And he goes, yeah, I'm going to go running into my casket. That's, that's how I'm going to go out. I'm going to dive into my casket. They're not going to stop me from having fun and doing my stuff. Understood. Behold, this, we have investigated it, 27. Thus it is, hear it says Eliphaz, know it, know for yourself. The speech crescendos with a challenge to Job. You see, righteous people live full, long lives. They end their life in vigor, like Caleb, when he was old, he still had strength, like the stacking of grain in a time of harvest, 26. Here's the picture. Look, this is what I've investigated in life. So hear what I'm saying. And know it for yourself, Job. See, Eliphaz is attempting to build Job up with hope, but as you can see, every time Job looks in the mirror, he says, that's not true of me. I don't know how this story is going to end. In fact, 
it's gone really badly and it looks like there's more pain to come. Job, understandably, in his coming responses, will challenge Eliphaz's, one writer says, unilateral application of this teaching of the security for the person of faith. Eliphaz exhorts Job to experience this for himself. If he does what the council suggests, he will know it for himself. In essence, he says, by yielding to God, Job will find the peace and quiet he desires so earnestly, but Job might retort, but I did yield to God. God will abundantly bless every aspect of his life, but that's what the Satan said about Job. The reason he follows you is because you bless him. You put a hedge about him. You bless the work of his hands. But if you let me add him, he'll curse you to your face. That's why he follows you. Can you hear it in Eliphaz's speech? Oh, if you're just a righteous man, you'll get blessings, Job. That's how the world works. You do what's right. You get blessed. I'm blessed. You feel sad? Sometimes wonder if they're even a Christian. How you doing? I'm blessed. You see, this is the way the world works. We like the blessings, but the New Testament church, as the scriptures unfold, says this, sometimes you'll suffer according to the will of God, 1 Peter 4. And Jesus says to his followers, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus was saying, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, let's remember, Job's case is extreme. Amen? And it's, it's an extreme case for a reason, but Jesus has asked you to follow him, and sometimes there will be a cost to following him. Here's what you need to think about as we wrap up this message. You see... Without the gospel, we cannot make sense of what really matters in life. Eliphaz's sermon is powerful, persuasive, and even beautiful. But is it truly truthful? Yes and no. Job's suffering was not the result of the loving discipline of God. There was something much deeper and higher going on. If someone were to look at the suffering of Job or the suffering of Jesus, our Savior, on a human level, they might say something like this. He's under, imagine Jesus on the cross. This is what they said. He's under the curse of God. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross and we will worship you. The Roman pagans going to the, the mall might have walked by the cross and said, too bad. This is what happens to people who go against the religious leadership of Israel and by virtue of that, get in trouble with the Romans. Too bad. Too bad he had to die like that. Too bad Job has to go through that suffering until you have the worldview of the gospel. And the people who may have thought, oh, it's a shame that the religious leaders got him crucified. And maybe the pagans who said, oh, too bad. All they're living for is now. A worldview 
or counsel devoid of the cross will miss the mark and leave people dangling over the fire and sparks of inexplicable trouble, pain in this world with no higher answer, no reason for their existence. And all it is is maybe you get lucky, maybe you make it through, maybe you live a long life, and that's it. Computer screen goes blank and you're done. Or you can say, wait a minute, hold on. Even if times get hard, my worldview is gospel-oriented. Amen? And I serve the living God, and I have hope. And yes, I love it when my days are peaceful and smooth, but even in times of trouble, I'm not going to lose hope because my hope is in Jesus Christ. Not in my life being perfect. I'm sure you've noticed there are no perfect lives. Have you seen the lifestyles of the rich and famous? <laughs> Have you opened up the magazines that they sell along the grocery line? Some of them you're like, oh my goodness, really? This person's in trouble. This person gained 30 pounds. They usually show an ugly picture of them. <laughs> this person's divorced for the 17th time. This person over here. This person over there. And you're like, oh, wait, hold on. Lottery winner has kindergarten teacher. Take them out to get the, you know, whatever. That's just a made-up thing. But you get the point. It's Without the worldview of the gospel, what are we going to do? Who's going to answer us? Where are we going to turn? How are we going to make sense of this until we look a little deeper and a little higher? Father, thank you for the book of Job. The greater one that came is named Jesus, suffered more than Job. Suffered more than any man or woman has ever suffered and understands our pain. In fact, thank you, Jesus, you entered into our pain. And even though we go through trials and troubles and sometimes we can lose some hope, you are our hope. Would you restore hope in your people tonight? If you don't know Jesus and you don't have a worldview that includes the gospel, just know that he loves you and he died for you so that you can truly live. Put your hope and trust in him. Everything that you see around you is temporary, my friend. It's all going to perish at some point, but the one who follows the Lord and does his will endures forever. And Lord, as we get ready to come to your table and we celebrate the fact that we can hang on because we know you're going to bless us and do those awesome things in our lives, you'll do it again until we go home to be with you. Help the saint that's just barely hanging on. Help that person that maybe brand new to the faith, trying to make sense of this, this crazy world. And let it be that we anchor our hope and life in the gospel. In Jesus' name.